and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his kinsmen and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, tells a fascinating story about a a Dr. Stuart Wolf. Back in the 1950s, he was a physician at the OU Medical Center. He was an internist and a researcher, but each summer he would take time and go up to Pennsylvania for vacation. And while he was up there one year, he got to talking with some other physicians, and this man said, you know, we're discovering that We believe in Rosetto, the small town of about 2,000. People don't seem to be dying of any kind of heart disease. Now, that was kind of intriguing to think if that really is the case. And so Dr. Wolf came back and got a bunch of graduate students in order to go back to Rosetto and begin to do some research. I mean, in those days, you didn't have everything computerized. It was all by hand that you had to do it. And so they got the graduate students, they got up there, they began going through the birth certificates and death certificates, and sure enough, what they found was anybody under 65 years old did not die of heart disease. Anybody over 65 years old, well, they were dying at half the rate of the nation, a national average. Something was going on. Their hunch was right. And so he wanted to try to figure out what it was. They gathered more people to go back and do additional research. These town of Rosetto, these 2,000 people, they were very open to that. They were willing to give interviews, to have their blood drawn. They wanted to see if they too could figure out what in the world was happening. Now, as they started talking there in Rosetto, they discovered a lot about this town. This fascinating little town, it was started in about 1912. In 1912, there was Rosetto, Italy, and they were going through economic difficult times, and people started migrating to the United States. They went and settled in this little hilly area in Pennsylvania. It's north of Philadelphia. They began settling there, and over the next 15 years, basically you took Rosetto, Italy, and settled it in Pennsylvania. And in this little town, everybody spoke Italian. That's all they spoke. They went to their little Catholic church. It really was a wonderful place to live. Well, as they started looking at it, they began thinking, okay, something's got to be going on then with these people, since they're all basically from the same town in Italy, I bet it's got to be diet. It must be the way that they're eating. So they did some research and they found out that 
in Rosetto, Italy, that they all cooked with olive oil. Now that they're in the United States, they cooked with lard. They said it tasted better. They smoked. They struggled with being overweight. No, no, diet wasn't the answer. They started thinking, well, maybe it's exercise. They must exercise more than everyone else. But as they did their interviews, no, no, it wasn't exercise. They weren't crazy about that. No, it must be their genes. Something about the genetic history of these people there in Italy. But as they begin to research and other people from Rosetto who lived other places than the town, they found they were dying at the national average from heart disease. No, they started thinking, well, maybe it's the, the environment, it's the land, it's the air, it's the water. But as they looked at other towns around that area, they discovered all those people in those towns were dying of heart disease at the national average. Now, after doing all the research and working through it, they finally came to a conclusion. And I want to read you what they said. As Dr. Wolf walked around town and looked at how the Rosettans visited with one another, stopping to chat in Italian on the streets, cooking for one another in their backyards, they learned about the extended family clans that underlay the town's social structure. They saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof and how much respect grandparents commanded. They went to Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and they saw the unifying and calming effect of the church. They counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of just 2,000 people. The difference was community. It became known as the Rosetto Effect. Community. A place where people felt loved, accepted, forgiven, valued, it made all the difference in the world in terms of their health and the quality of life to be a part of community. That made me think of Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. We believe he lived about 33 years. His ministry was maybe three years. And when Jesus was crucified and then ascended into heaven, the only thing different on this earth was that he left behind a community. A small group of men and women who had come to know what it means to be loved and forgiven and accepted and valued. A small group of men and women that became a part of a family of faith, community. And it's that community, that experience that began to spread around the world and literally has changed the world. It's why our scripture lesson is so important this morning because it's one of those times where community really comes into being. Peter one of the good disciples of Jesus certainly understands that as a good Jew, you do not associate with Gentiles. These people are common, unclean. You don't associate with Gentiles. They are bad people. They are different. The Jews were God's chosen people. 
Well, after Jesus had been crucified, ascended into heaven, Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, and there he was up on the roof praying when God gave him a vision, and the sheet comes down from heaven, and it's full of unclean animals. And the voice says, rise up, kill, eat. And Peter said, I would never do that. And God said, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. Well, it's right after that, there's a knock at the door and some men have shown up. They represent Cornelius and they're asking Peter to come to Cornelius' house. Now, Cornelius was a Roman soldier. He was a man of authority, a man of power, a man of wealth. He didn't really expect Peter to come. But it turned out that Cornelius was also a God-fearer. That's what they were known as, God-fearer. A God-fearer was someone who was a Gentile, but someone who also worshipped Yahweh. Not all the gods, the Roman gods, but the one God, Yahweh. A God-fearer was someone who prayed, who worshipped. And they said, here is someone who is generous. He gives alms to the poor. He blesses life. And so Peter's just heard this message, and so he goes. And when he gets near to the house, here Cornelius comes out because he knows Peter will never cross the threshold of a home, a Gentile home. And he falls down at Peter's feet and Peter says, stand up, I'm a man. Let's go inside. You need to understand how significant that was for Peter to cross that threshold into the home. And then Peter says, let's eat. To sit down at table, to share a meal with Gentiles. That was so out of his comfort zone. That was so crossing the line. It's one of those hinge points in history. It's where Peter opens the door for people to come into a community of faith. It is where Peter begins to build bridges to those who are different. He makes the statement, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. It's how you build community. A community where you're loved and forgiven and accepted and valued. A community that changes life, that brings health, that brings vitality to life. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, What You Do Matters. And I want to talk about how you and I go about the business of helping to build community. Because right now, you and I are living in a time of tribalism. We seem to be breaking into groups and we want people to think like we think and look like we look. And everybody who thinks differently is the other, the enemy, someone we don't like. We separate ourselves from them. We want to be in our own little group of people who think the same way and look the same way. That doesn't build community. That tears the world apart. To help build a place where people know that they are loved and accepted and forgiven and valued. We help to change the world. To build community. When was the last time you spoke with one of your neighbors? 
When was the last time you spoke to somebody whose skin was a different color than yours? When was the last time you spoke to someone who was of a different faith? We separate ourselves into groups and then it's everybody else. Peter was opening the door. He was building a bridge. He was inviting people into a community. The community of Jesus Christ where people would know that they are loved, forgiven, accepted, valued. You and I can help to build community. It's what I want us to think about today. And there's really three things that I want us to see. I believe that to build community, you and I have to start caring about other people's feelings. It was Peter who would be with Jesus and hear Jesus teach what we know as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you care about how somebody else is feeling? Are, they treating you, are you treating them the way you would want to be treated? How does it make you feel? He didn't just hear Jesus talk about it. He saw Jesus live it. Jesus cared about how does the, the leper feel who's excluded? How does the beggar feel? How does the woman at the well feel? No, he was always reaching out and caring in a special way. And Peter was saying, we're asked to go care about how others are going to feel. I got to tell you, it was really a sad week for me this week. It was a hard week. My Houston Astros lost. I, I, I was born and raised in Houston. You know that I'm a Houston Astros fan. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, last year they won the World Series for the first time in 52 years of existence. Now that's a long time to be a fan to wait for your team to win the World Series. 52 years and they won. Oh, it was felt so good. It was incredible last year. They had a wonderful season this year. They made it all the way to the American League playoff, the divisional playoff, and they lost. They would have been going on to the World Series. They lost to Boston, and now Boston's going on. So it made me really sad. But as I was watching the games, you know, it's fun to see all the people who are trying to catch home runs. We had a little controversy there. Trying to catch home runs, get that ball, catch a foul ball. You know, everybody wants to do it, whether you're a kid or whether you're a grown adult. If you go to the ballpark, man, to, to get a ball. As I'm watching the game, it, it suddenly reminded me of a story that I, I heard four or five years ago now. It's about a young man named Ian McMillan. Ian McMillan was 12 years old. He was a big Arizona Diamondbacks fan. Lived out there. He was a big Diamondback fan. And he was at the ballpark with a couple of his friends. And of course, you know, they were there to try to catch a ball. They were about 10 rows up from the edge of the, uh, of the railing. And it just so happened the Diamondbacks were playing the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. And the Milwaukee Brewers were out on the field. They wound up getting a, an out and caught a fly ball. And the player turned and threw the ball up into the stands. Now, there was a, a little boy there who was in a Milwaukee Brewers uniform right there with his mom. But he had Ian and all the other kids are also lined up. All the kids are trying to scramble for the ball. And the ball fell. Everyone missed it and it fell between the fence and the, um, and the stands. One of the groundskeeper picked up the ball and tossed it up there and Ian caught it. 
Well, he began dancing around. I mean, he ran back up the steps. He was going in circles, holding up the ball. What he didn't know was that the television camera was zeroed in on him. And you had the, the sports broadcasters going, there's a happy boy for you now. Oh, my goodness. He is going home. He's a happy guy today. But what you didn't kind of see at that moment was down front was this younger kid in the brewer's uniform was sobbing. And he is curled up into his mother's shoulder and he was just crying. And suddenly Ian looks down and sees that boy. And he would say later, it suddenly hit me, maybe the Bruin player, the Brewers player, was throwing the ball towards the kid dressed in a Brewers uniform. I thought maybe it was meant for him and he missed it. He saw him crying, and so suddenly he starts coming back down the steps. And the sports announcer is going, what's he doing? Oh, my goodness, you got to be kidding me. Surely it's not. Oh, my, look at this guy. And he comes back down right along the front, and he comes over to the kid, and he gives him the ball. And this little boy is so shocked, and he takes the ball in his glove, and looking up at his mom, and Ian goes back up and takes a seat with his other two buddies. Well, the broadcaster's just going on and on. Oh, my goodness, what a fine young man. He sure has been raised right. Is that not incredible? I mean, they get out their little marker, and they're circling it, his face there on the, on the teleprompter, the screen. There's, Look at this kid. I tell you, what, what a kind thing. They then send people from the broadcast booth to get Ian and his two buddies and bring them up to the broadcast booth. They put them on TV. They present Ian with a bat signed by his favorite player on the Diamondbacks. And then they invite him to come to batting practice the next day. And then they invite him to throw out the first pitch at the game. And then the next night, he's on NBC National News. <laughs> All because he did what was right. All because he decided to be kind. And we're so surprised. Why? Because that's not what we see in the world. When you watch your reality TV shows, does anybody live by the golden rule? Right now we're in a political campaign. You see the ads? I don't care whether they're produced by Democrats or Republicans. Do you think any of these people know the golden rule? Do you think anybody's caring about somebody else's feelings? But instead of worrying about all them, we can come back to ourselves and worry about ourselves. Do you and I step out of the center of the universe and see somebody else's feelings? Do we choose to live by the golden rule? It's the way you build community. It's what we need in the world where we know that we are loved and forgiven and accepted and, and valued. Are you caring about someone's feelings? What you do matters. Secondly, I believe you and I help to create community when we give to bless life. I heard the news this past week 
that Albert Lexi died. Some of you will recognize the name, Albert Lexi. He was 76 years old. He passed away this last Tuesday. Albert Lexi, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As a young boy growing up, it was easy to see he had a developmental disability. I mean, he didn't, he kind of shuffled when he walked. It wasn't anything they could really pinpoint. But you could tell he was not as smart. He, he wasn't as sharp as all the other children in school. He struggled. When he was 15 years old, he built himself a, a shoe shine kit. And that's what he started doing, as his job for the rest of his life was shining shoes. It was in 1982 that he started working at Children's Hospital there in Pittsburgh. And he'd go and shine shoes. In 1982, he'd shine your shoes for $3. By the end of his career, 31 years later, he's charging 5 But when he started his career there in 1982 at Children's Hospital, he made the decision that whatever someone tipped him over and above the $3, he was going to donate to the Free Children's Health Fund. It was for kids who needed health care and couldn't afford it. And so if he shined your shoes for $3 and you gave him 5 he gave $2 to the health fund. When he was finally making 5 if you gave him 10 he gave $5 to the free health care fund. He gave his tips for 31 years. Albert Lexi would ultimately give to the Children's Health Fund over $200,000. The CEO of the hospital said there was no one who gave a greater percentage of their income to help children than Albert Lexi. He loved the children. And everybody said being around him, it just kind of lifted your spirits. I mean, it made you feel good. It really boosted your idea. Uh, There were all kinds of administration people being interviewed saying, just being around Albert just made me want to be a better person. He inspired me. He was always smiling. He was always happy. He loved the children. The children loved him. I saw an interview, and they were asking Albert. They said, you really care about these children, don't you? He said, sure do. You don't even know them. You don't know them, but you still love them. That's why God put you here. You may not know them, but you still love them. It's why God put you here. It's when you and I choose to give to bless life that we start to create community. I think about what we do in our children's department our youth department, creating a place of community for kids who have such a different world they're growing up in than what I did. I think about Studio 222. It's in its 15th year. Long enough that we can kind of see long term. We created a community for kids who came from challenging circumstances And they found a place where they were loved and accepted and forgiven and valued. Coming from families where no one had graduated from high school. And now we can see how they graduated from high school. And how they went on to to college. And many have graduated from college. You changed their lives. You changed the world. 
It's when you and I decide that we care and we give to bless life that we create community. What you do matters. And third, I believe that you and I create community when we are willing to accept responsibility to be the hands of Christ in the world. It's really not about what everybody else is doing. It's about what we do. It's about when we decide that we're going to care about other people's feelings and we're going to give to create community and we will be involved in order to bless life. When you accept responsibility that you are the hands of Christ, you create community. It was Peter who was willing to leave the home of Simon the Tanner and go to be with Cornelius. He was the one who went. He was the one who went into the house. He was the one who sat down to eat. To go to the person that you're not supposed to like. I mean, Jews were supposed to hate Gentiles. And for him to go as the hands of Christ, to reach out and to love, to care, he changed the world. He built community. When we went to Washington, D.C. to start trying to prepare for these trips that we are going to be taking, I hope for years to come right now, as we went to go, one of the places we went was the Lincoln Memorial. I love the Lincoln Memorial. To go up on the steps and you look down the Washington Mall. Oh my goodness gracious, how inspiring it is. The National Mall there and on standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And as I stood there, I got to thinking about Martin Luther King, Jr., It was 50 years ago this year that he was assassinated. Assassinated because he was trying to build community. Trying to bring us together rather than us being so torn apart. It was 55 years ago this year that he stood there on the steps of that Lincoln Memorial and he gave his I Have a Dream speech. The speech in which he said... I have a dream that one day my children will be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. We've come a long way. We have a long way to go. We still know racism and hatred and division and pulling apart. While we were there, we went not only to the Lincoln Memorial, we also went to the African American Museum. And I have to tell you, that was incredibly moving. It's only been two, it's only two years old. And, and I know history pretty well. And I certainly understood slavery, segregation. But when you go through this museum, you learn about it in a whole different way to see what life was like. One of the places that they have is, is a special place where you go and learn about Emmett Till. Now, you know, I, I remembered the name. But I didn't really remember the story. Before Martin Luther King Jr., before Rosa Parks, there was Emmett Till. And you come in and you, you, you see his casket. Now, it turned out he was 14 years old in 1955 when he was murdered. And he was buried, but then in the early 60s, they exhumed his body to do DNA testing to make sure it was him. And it was 
and then they buried him in this beautiful casket. But they have the original casket there, and it is on display, and you see the photographs, and you hear the story. It turns out he was 14 years old, living in Chicago with his mom. She was a single mom, had a good job. They were middle class. He went to school. He made A's. He was a smart kid, always happy, laughing, loved to tease. Good kid. Had an uncle who lived in Mississippi and a couple of cousins, and they invited him to come down that summer to be there in Mississippi. And so he went down to go be with his uncle and to be with his cousins. He was there about the third day, and the kids went to a drugstore, and Carolyn Bryant was there waiting on them. And she would later say, I felt like he was flirting with me. He went outside, and she said he made a wolf whistle. That offended her. When her husband came home two days later, she told him he went to Emmett's uncle's home at 2 a.m. with his brother in law. They went to the house, they kidnapped Emmett, they took him down to the river. There they beat him and beat him senseless, and then they shot him, and then wrapped his body in barbed wire, attached it to a cotton gin fan and then threw him in the river. It was three days before they found his body. He was unidentifiable. It's only because he had a ring on that was his father's ring and had his father's initials on it that they finally were able to identify the body. The authorities wanted to bury the body quickly, but his mother said, no, I want him brought home. And so they brought Emmett back to Chicago And she then made this very courageous decision. She wanted his body to lie in state in an open casket. And it was lying in his church in an open casket for about three days. And more than 100,000 people came by. It was hard to look. It It was revulsion. Newspapers, magazines picked it up and put the pictures across the country. And it galvanized whites and blacks to say, this is wrong. How can we allow this to happen? What are we doing? It was the face of hate. Turned out that the two men, they were charged. They had a trial a couple months after It took the jury 67 minutes to come back and say they were not guilty. Once they had been found not guilty, they couldn't be charged again. And a few months later, they sold their story to Life magazine for $4,000 as they told what happened, how they had killed him. I want to read you what Mamie, his mother, said. Two months ago, I had a nice apartment in Chicago. I had a good job. I had a son. When something happened to the Negroes in the South, I said, that's their business, not mine. Now I know how wrong I was. The murder of my son has shown me what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. It really did begin to galvanize the civil rights movement in 1955. Three years later, When Rosa Parks was sitting on a bus 
and was told to get up and give up her seat and go to the back of the bus, she said, I thought of Emmett Till. And he gave me the courage and strength I needed to say no. It would be 50 years later. There were all kinds of new investigations. As I said, they exhumed the body. They went back and they were interviewing Carolyn Bryant. And she said, he really didn't do any of those things I said he did. He didn't do them. Years later, things had changed so much. Mamie had made the decision. She said, I'm not going to spend a minute hating I want to spend all of my life trying to help children to think and act different. She said, It took quite a while for me to accept how his murder connected so many things that make us what we are today. I didn't see it right away, but there was an important mission for me to shape so many other young minds as a teacher, a messenger, an active church member. God told me, You lost your child, but I will give you thousands. He has, and I have been grateful for that blessing. To realize that what happens to any of us had better be the business of all of us. It's our responsibility to be the hands of Christ in the world. To be those who care about other people's feelings, who give to bless life, who get involved and accept responsibility to care. You and I are able to help build community. And it's community that leads us to health and to life. A community of Christ where you know that you are loved and forgiven and accepted and valued. We help build community. What you do matters. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.